Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. My name is Vinny Angelo, and I'm here with Rob Dalrymple, and we are getting ready to launch into a really interesting episode. Uh, this is the first time, uh, well, at the time of the recording, this first time we've interviewed someone. <laughs> but uh, we, we there, there's a book that came out recently uh, within the last year that you were first exposed to, Rob. I, I hadn't been forced to read it yet, even though I wanted to. I don't think I, part of me wanted to read it because uh, mm. it's one of those things. You don't want to see the man behind the curtain, right? Um, but, but explain to me the book that you said, hey, we should uh, read this book and then interview the author. Yeah, we're excited to have Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger on the podcast this morning. Uh, as we call, as we talk about a, a church called Tove, that's the name of their book, A Church Called Tove, and Tove is the Hebrew word for good. Uh, and, and this is really kind of hitting to my heart a lot, and I think yours as well, as well a little bit, Vinny, because there's, I, I know a lot of people, and I think we both do, that have just kind of been dis, disgruntled with church. They're just, I'm done with it. I, I, I'm past it. I, they've seen so much abuse and so much conflict and so much trouble uh, with church. They've, they've given up. Um, others are in the midst of it, and they don't know what to do with it. Um, we've had all kinds of scandals, of course, that have rocked Christianity with the Bill Hybels at Willow Creek, the Catholic Church scandals, the Southern Baptist Convention scandals. And so we're just going to have a conversation uh, on a church called Tove. What does it mean to have a, a church that's good? And, and what do you do when you're in the midst of something that's not as good? Yeah. Yeah. And, th and this is such an amazing time that we get to live in right now, Rob, because it's not like the, like church scandals are a new thing. These have been happening probably since the beginning of the church. There's been abuses. Anytime a, a, a fallible human being has power, they're going to screw it up. Yeah. But, let me interrupt you for a second. Yeah. Every single book of the New Testament is written to address problems in the church. Yeah. Right. I mean, th this is not new. I, I, Paul I, I dealt I, with them a lot. I had a professor who would say, uh, it wasn't you, it was a different one. He would say, if you got a letter from Paul, things were not good in your church. <laughs> And we could, yeah. we gave the Thes the church in Thessalonica uh, in the Phil Phil Philippians a break, but um, maybe Philippi, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, you know, this is we, we live in a time though where it's it's not up to the major news outlets to determine what news is because we have blogs and Twitter and these sorts of things. People can go out on a limb and sacrifice their own uh, name to say, hey, we're going to bring something to the forefront and actually expose something. And it gets to a point where you have to address it. And so we thank God for for people like Scott and Laura, who are willing to put their own necks out there and, and uh, risk their own um, you know, names to, to say, hey, this is something that's going on. And we thank God for publishers that are willing to publish books on these sorts of things. And so this, this is the conversation we're having is stuff that is probably millennia old, but uh, it's happening now and we get to be a part of that. Amen. All right, let's get into it. All right, here we go. Today, we have two very special guests as we're going to be talking in more detail about the church and what is the church and how to make a good church. So we want to welcome uh, Laura Berenger. She's an outspoken advocate for the wounded resistors of institutional abuse. Laura is the co-author of a book called A Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. She previously co-authored the children's version of the Jesus Creed and wrote a teacher's guide to accompany the book. She published articles for the Jesus Creed, the Inglewood Review of Books, and her writing is featured in Church Leaders and the Roy's Report. Laura is a graduate of Wheaton College. Laura, we want to thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And Scott McKnight is a New Testament scholar who's written widely on the historical Jesus and Christian spirituality. He's a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary in Lombard, Illinois. He received a bachelor's from Cornerstone University, a master's from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, 
and a doctorate from the University of Nottingham. He's written more than 80 books, including my favorite, The Jesus Creed. Uh, he's also won, uh, which won a, a Christianity Today uh, Book of the Year Award in 2004. You can follow Scott in his blog, of course, at uh, um, Christianity Today, and of course, the Jesus Creed uh, or the Kingdom Roots podcast. So thanks, Scott, for being here with us. Well, thanks, Rob. Great to be with you, too. All right, so let's begin. We, we really want to center this conversation first off around your book, which is a, called a, a Church Called Tove. And uh, tell us why you chose that title and why you wrote this book. Well, I can do the, uh, I can answer the question about why the title. Um, uh, Laura and Laura and I were involved in the Willow Creek case, the big mega church in Chicagoland area. And I made a comment on my blog one day at Jesus Creed that churches need more goodness. And the, and goodness, the number of people who wrote me about goodness really surprised me. So I began to think about goodness, and the Hebrew word for good or goodness is tov. It's found throughout, uh, especially in Ch Genesis chapter 1, but it's used some 200 times in the Old Testament, and it refers to a moral, uh, a, a master moral category. And so um, we chose that title because uh, we did not want to write a book that was an expose of church problems, of toxicity. But we wanted to offer to the church a new vision for uh, how churches could uh, form a better character and culture. And so we focused on the word Tove. And Laura can answer the other question. I was going to say we had to fight, fight our publisher a bit to have Tove in the title. They were nervous about a Hebrew name. They said they'd never published a book with a Hebrew name on the cover. But my dad would always tell me how catchy the word Tove was with his students. They would learn it and then start using it all the time. And so we finally convinced them. <laughs> it's, it's funny, the first time I, I heard the, the book being uh, promoted, I did kind of, it was one of those like Spanglish moments, right? Yeah. Uh, which I, that's a thing in California where, cause you have such a huge Hispanic population and stuff is like partly put in English than Spanish. And it was like, wait, a church called Tove? And you, you kind of have to do one of those quick did they just put a Hebrew word in the yeah. title here? It, it, I think I think it's a genius title. We've had people yeah. tell us they picked up the book just because they liked the title and wanted to see what it was about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it is catchy. I find my students using the word tove. You know, when you use the word good, you get yourself in trouble with Protestant theologians who say there is none good, no, not one. <laughs> and that sort of Augustinian anthropology, if I can use that expression that we use in seminaries, is so dominant uh, that people are afraid of saying, I'm, I want to be good. Um, but yet this is a word used throughout the Old Testament for the way people are supposed to live before God. Jesus calls us to good works. And Paul says one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is tov or goodness. So we should be using this word tov. It catches, it's catchy. It's a little different. It keeps us out of trouble with the Protestants and, uh, and, and um, we find that it works with our students and people we talk to. Yeah, I, I even love real quick how at the near the end of the book you make the point that um, the gospel is the message of Tov. Yeah, and and that even took me a second. I'm reading. That, I'm like, wait a minute. Oh, good news. Oh, that totally makes sense. That's like what a yeah. great way of framing that. Uh, even that concept, you know, cr in a Christ-centered way, that was great. Well, Vinny, if I can do a little Greek here, you know, the Greek word for gospel is you angelion. Mm -hmm. You, it's epsilon, upsilon, or EU. 
Well, in the Old Testament, sometimes the Hebrew word tov is translated in the Greek translation with just eu, eu. So there it is. Tov is good, good message. So good news. Yeah, that's good. And, and the idea behind it, of course, is that this is what the church should be, right? I mean, how, how do we form good churches or churches that are modeled with, with goodness? I know you, you have, a, a, I think it's seven chapters at the end of the book, a good church is like this, a good church is like that. What would be the, maybe the one thing that you would say that stands out above them all, that a, a good church is fill in the blank? I would well, say Christ-like, but I'll let my dad, yeah. I'll let the yeah. theologian answer. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. She's been listening to me long enough. You know, <laughs> it's always it is, nice, right? Um, it is, um, you know, it kind of depends on the situation as to which of the categories of goodness that I would focus on. But as a master summary, uh, a good church is Christ-like. It, it conveys the image of Jesus as the body of Christ. But in certain contexts, you might say, well, it's somebody who's, uh, who puts people first or who's somebody who tells the truth. So we would, we would want to say that, um, yes, there are summaries, but, but there are contexts in which another term might flip, every, flip the script and turn everything upside down. So what I like about it, though, is that it, it, it immediately orientates the church to say, hey, there's, there's something that we're driving towards and dri towards being. And we don't just exist, right? A lot of people, uh, the yeah. church exists to pay the pastor's salary. The church exists to be a place where I can worship on Sundays. The church exists for, the, no, the church exists to be good. So what do you see is the kind of the role of the, the church? And I'll use, we can use the word church in big C, you know, global yeah. or, or even local. What's the role of the church? And do you see that in terms of uh, in culture, in the world and in society? Well, this is a big question, Rob. And it's, it's actually really, it's such a big question with such a big implication right. that it's the whole point of everything that we do. And I would say the, per, the, the role of the church in the world is to witness to the redemption of God in Christ and to embody that redemption in a tov way of life that makes our witness credible. Hmm. Wow. How's that? Say that yeah. one more time. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I don't think I could. It is, uh, <laughs> it is to uh, witness to the, uh, the church's go uh, job or task is to witness to the redemptive work of God in Christ mm -hmm. in the world and to embody that witness in such a way that makes our witness credible right right there's that that old saying whoever it's been attributed to you know that there are five gospels matthew mark luke and john and then your life and most people don't read the first four right most people's vision of of yeah, jesus yeah, and the gospel yeah. is what they see in the local church yeah. um and so why would they want that when they know what that local church is like so uh, wonderful now one of the things that you do in the book of course, that you know that all right, there's a danger the way a lot of churches are set up um, because they lead uh, to, uh, they, they appeal to narcissistic leaders that become abusive. Can you speak to that a little bit? What was your experience? I know, uh, Laura, you were very involved 
um, with uh, the, the Willow Creek event and, and things like that. So speak a little bit about, about the way churches are constructed that, that, that uh, allow these kind of leaders to kind of come in and flourish. Well, I became suspicious of the megachurch model and I don't know where you two. That's okay. Uh, Go ahead. Okay. Speak freely. It's <laughs> Sorry okay. <laughs> um, however, uh, through the course of the research of this book, I became suspicious of the megachurch model, not only because of what I had seen happen at Willow Creek and my mom is a psychologist. So um, we, my dad and I relied on her expertise Um too. We had that as our advantage. But the more that I read and the more that I researched, I, I felt increasingly uncomfortable with the megachurch model because not that all megachurches are bad. That's not what I'm saying. I don't take issue with them in general, but it seems that you have to be a person of really enormous character not to fall temptation to the celebrity or feeling like you're more important than everyone else. At Willow Creek, for example, Bill Hybels was inaccessible. You, mm-hmm. He was behind the stage in a green room before and after the service. And I don't know, over time, what does that do to a person when we're treating them? And the congregation, in my opinion, plays a part too. We're the ones that stand up and clap and treat the people on stage like they are celebrities. Right. Um, well, and then yeah. the other thing is that uh, power attracts people who want power, right? Right. You no, know? authority attracts people who like authority, and and authoritarian people are higher on the scale of narcissism than non-powerful, non-authoritarian people. And uh, Chuck DeGroat, in his book *Narcissism Comes to Church*. Um, says, uh, said to me one day, said, everybody who's a pastor, and then he looked at me and said, and a professor, which he, and he's both, um, everyone in those positions is on the spectrum of narcissism, Hmm. because who else is going to stand up on a platform and tell people how to live before God, other Mm -hmm. than people who think they know, and that's pretty authoritative. Right, Right. So narcissism is is a part of the game that a pastor has to play. You don't get to get on that platform without being tempted by this, without this being a dimension of what you're doing. So, um, so it attracts people of power and narcissism, and people who are higher on the narcissistic scale have the very serious problem of pastoring, oddly enough, ironically enough, of enhancing their narcissism rather than their service mentality. And and, uh, we've encountered in the last nine months, I guess, uh, since our book came out, far too many letters of people telling us stories of narcissistic power-mongering pastors who abuse people psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, um, and economically in other ways, uh, with threats and power mongering. And, you know, I look back at this and I think, what is wrong with someone who is claiming to be Christ-like as a model, as an exemplary right. Christian who is acting like this? What what has happened that people think they can do this? And it's, you know, it's ego. It's, 
It's a, this is a I, very, very serious problem. I happen to be reading right now, The Preacher's Wife by Kate Bowler. And the line that I read this morning that I can't, that stunned me, she didn't name names, but she said it was a mega church pastor. And at home, his wife who divorced him later, never once saw him pray or read his Bible or speak about Christ. Mm. So it makes you even wonder sometimes yeah. why did they go into ministry in the first place? Was yeah. it to attract followers? What was it? Right. right. I, I, I have been listening. I don't know if you guys have been listening to the uh, the Christianity Today podcast about um, the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Um, so at, at the time of our, you know, recording this, it like, I think the third episode has been released or something like that. I was listening to it yesterday and, and the commentator even made a point saying, Hey, narcissism and these sorts of authoritarian issues, it's not just relegated to the megachurch pastor. Like this can happen in the tiny, small congregation as well. And um, the thing I, I think I very much appreciate about the book is it's, you're having to unpick the scabs and you're using a case study like, like Willow and, and you're bringing in some other examples as well, but it's, everyone knows about those. So it's easy to point those out and to make those the case study. But I, I think when I was reading the book, the heart of it is not just to, you're, you're not just being vengeful or, or trying to just get back at someone. You guys are trying to make uh, an important impact in the church moving forward saying, Hey, this is not good. And we know what good is how can we actually correct this? How could we, uh, you know, uh, stop these sorts of things happening? Cause it's just so damaging on so many levels. One of my questions would be um, when, when you look at someone who might have narcissi narcissistic tendencies or is a narcissist, I mean, that person is not going to want to examine themselves and say, wow, I'm a narcissist. I mean, by nature, they, it's almost like having a, a blank mirror in front of them. They cannot engage in introspection. But for maybe the pastor who's exposed to this book now, who's maybe not at that point yet, what is a good, uh, in your guys' research and, and conversations you had, are there maybe checkpoints or things that those folks can put around them to say, hey, this, I don't want to be Bill Hybels in 15 years. I want to have a long, faithful career. What are things that I could actually do practically to make sure that I don't go down that road? Oh boy, this is a, this is a big one, Vinny. Uh, and I love the question. And if I had a blanket uh, solution for all these things in the church, I would, I would right here, this is where I think I would camp. But uh, I learned this from Chuck DeGroat. Every pastor should have to go through a clear psychological battery in order to move forward for ordination. Mm. Okay, now what this means is, uh, let's just say we take the MMPI, uh, which I took in seminary. Um, then a, a trained psychologist who knows how to read an MP, MMPI goes through it with you to manifest to you your personality issues everybody's got them, okay? And I believe that a psychologist has to be on staff and has to be in the search committee. I, I always say this, one more psychologist and two fewer lawyers on the search <laughs> committee, um, just so that you'll have people who discern character. And I, as, as you're speaking of this, I think the church needs to have a, let's say a trained psychologist, we're talking now at a fairly large church. If it's a, if it's a rural church and you got a power monger, uh, you're not gonna have the resources probably. 
to afford all this, but they should have a psychologist who who sort of uh, not not shadows but accompanies the pastor in a lot of these meetings to begin to see how this pastor operates with other people. Now, these people who are good on the platform are also good at knowing the way to act on the platform so that people don't see their problems. But over time, a psychologist will see these things come to fruition in their life and can work with them. But my, my problem is that most of these, um, let's call them um, independent, autonomous, non-denominational churches do not have accountability structures like this where you could require that the incoming search candidates all submit a psychological report to the search committee. I mean, how else are we going to see this? Because you know as well as I do that we're not going to spot this sitting in the congregation watching a really good sermon performed. We're going to go, wow, the guy's great or she's great. But uh, it's other people who will see it. And I, so I'm, I'm for, I would say that's my big point. We need psychologists involved with, with these pastors more and more. Let me, if I could, let me ask a follow-up from the perspective. One of the things that Rob and I have uh, that's different in us is we do come from uh, some different traditions. So I'm actually on staff at a reformed Baptist church. Uh, right. So uh, I'll forgive you. For that. I, I know, I know. Okay. Uh, and I was, I was even telling Rob earlier, like I, I've appreciated a lot of your work over the years because uh, I, especially how you you've engaged in, in, you know, challenging folks in the reformed community to say like, Hey, you like, there's more to it than this. And that's a whole other show. Yeah. But uh, I, I've, I've very much been challenged in a positive way uh, by your work there. But so I'm I'm thinking from my congregation standpoint, and we actually like we actually have a counseling center on staff. We have a trained psychologist on staff, uh, and we actually you know do a lot of stuff in our community that way. So we're not one of those churches that's anti psychology, but I I could hear the voices of many of you know folks of our congregation who say, wait a minute. I read first Timothy three and I don't see any qualifications for a pastor that has to do with the psychological, uh, uh, you know, qualifications. And you're just bringing in worldly things now, like Scott, how, you know, in, in your comment there and saying, Hey, no, this is an important aspect of vetting our, our leaders speak and pastor those folks in a second here. Like, uh, yeah. you know, like talk them off the ledge on saying how you're not just going new age on us here. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and the um, psychological development is actually part of a holistic discipleship. Yeah. I mean, it's naive to think that psychology is not involved, but the, um, let's just say the lists in, in the pastoral epistles, the two lists, plus you can add the deacons, et cetera. Uh, these are not uh, rules. These are not laws. These are character manifestations, and they are to be read over against, say, the book by Theophrastus in the ancient world called Characters, where they were aware of different expressions of character and how, and Aristotle did the same thing. This person's this way, this person's that way. That's what Paul's doing. He's bringing to fruition manifestations of people with a toe of character. That's what he's doing. So these are not just things they do, but manifestations of who they are. Okay, so this to me gets at character, personality, rather than simply skills and gifts. Um, and, I, and I would push it that way. And, uh, 
And I would also say you're incredibly naive if you don't think psychology is important. And of course, I don't like when I was in college and early seminary days, psychology came of age mm -hmm. in the evangelical movement. And I went to sermon after sermon that was just basically the pastor who had learned some psychology and now was imposing it on the Bible. I didn't like that. But I think we shouldn't flip in the other direction either, that we can avoid personality issues and personality problems. It's uh, profoundly unwise to ignore character and personality in leaders. Well, and it goes back to if the goal is to have a church called Tove, if the goal is to create goodness where Christ is modeled, then the pastor is someone who is essentially someone who's brought on to say, okay, I'm going to be modeling Christ for you. Let's do this together. Um, and that just changes the entire focus of what pastoral ministry is about and what the church is about. And the way I, one of the ways I think about it is the fact that look at all the small church. I mean, most churches are small and the definition of success that we have so often is large churches and da 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 which attracts the, but then you have all these pastors that then think, well, I must not be very good at this then uh, I'm because my church is small and I'm, I'm, I'm unsuccessful. Um, I, we had a, um, a meeting with my church a number of years ago where, okay, it's kind of the state of the union. How, how are we doing as a church? And let's evaluate how we're doing as a church. And I said, listen, how we're doing as a church is going to have to be, has to be defined by how much have you grown as a disciple of Jesus Christ this year? And that's not always measured by numbers of, um, in the pews and by money in the, in the plate, but, but how much have you grown as a disciple of Jesus Christ this year? So um, that's why I really like the focus of the book, A Church Called Tove, because it really kind of helps reorient us uh, around what we should be really ultimately doing. I like how you said you, it's more important than how many people come to the church and how much money is given. That resonates yeah, a lot yeah. with what we Yeah. I, I'm working with a group of pastors in India right now. And, and, and they, they, they struggle, off obviously, because of the, the predominantly Hindu cultures in certain, certain areas where they're, where they're at. And when I was encouraging them by saying, listen, a faithful pastor, a faithful leader is someone who shows Jesus and makes disciples, and it's not about having numbers, um, their, their, their faces started, it was on Zoom, their faces started lighting up. They're like, oh, maybe, I'm, maybe I can be successful in this, right? Yeah, and maybe, yeah. maybe my struggling church of eight people, it's not a failure. Uh, and so was, I think that really is helpful to them. And then obviously it knocks the narcissist, you know, kind of off their pedestal, but Hey, this isn't the definite. And, and I think that's one of the issues, you know, Laura, go back to the conversation about megachurches. It's one of the conversations we have to ask, is this what was intended? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was just sitting here thinking how big, uh, how big was Jesus's little church? Mm -hmm. If we yeah. want to call it church, you know, it fit inside Peter's house from what we can tell. And if yeah. that little house, on the front, on the very northern tip of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum yeah. is actually Peter's house, which I think it probably is, then, you know, maybe 25, maybe 50 every now and then. Right. Uh, sure, he had a, if you start feeding people free, you're going to get a big crowd. Uh, how many actually were followers of him? How big were Paul's churches? Right. You know, the standard estimation of the church in Rome which is probably written, this letter is written 56, 58 AD, which would mean Paul's uh, ministry has been going for 20 some years. Peter's ministry has been going 25 more or a few more years. How big was it? You know, most estimates somewhere between 100 and 200 people. Right. 
and that's in diff five different house churches, Matt, uh, probably. So right. I think the chances of 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 the of the pastor of the small church resonating with the vision of the New Testament is much higher than a mega church. A mega church pastor should say, "Am I doing this all wrong right. to have this large audience like this? Is that the way the New Testament teaches churches to be?" Uh, let's face it, churches are shaped today by coming to hear a pastor and coming to listen to the music rather than any, those are, those are the top two, and you can discount everything else to about 10. So that's not, that's not the way a New Testament church is depicted. Yeah, no, not at all. And, and, and I, I share with the pastors in India, as I, I said, you know, by all definitions, uh, the standard definitions of a successful church, Jesus was actually really bad. I mean, he not only did all those miracles and walked on water, but he died and rose again. And he still only had 120. <laughs> I, I said, I, I bet, I guarantee that if you rose from the dead, you can get more than 120 people. Yeah, um, that, that's, that's right. Good. So Laura, you made a comment in the book that, um, that you saw, uh, you were in a church service where they applauded 10 times uh, during the service. And uh, kind of tell us a little bit more about that context, what, what was going on there and why that kind of rubbed you the wrong way. I returned to a mega church after a few years away, I went for a special evening service. And one of, one of the things that really resonated with me is how odd it was to leave, to leave the mega church model and then return to it. I was able to see things that mm -hmm. I hadn't seen previously and the number of times that people stood and applauded for the people on stage was glaring and frankly alarming because at the little mega church where we attend, nobody applauds. Little, it's not a little mega church, it's a not, it's a little church. I'm sorry, I mean, a little, I'm at a little <laughs> Anglican church where we attend. Nobody applauds ever. There's no applause and there's standing and applause would be that just would never, ever happen. So I had been absorbed in this new culture of church going in Anglican world for a few years and just kind of healed there a little bit and felt more pure purposes for attending church, what church was supposed to look like. And then returning and seeing what I had left I felt complicit to be honest for the time that I was in the church that I was one of the people standing and clapping too. And what I participated in worshiping the people on stage, like when Bill Hybels would walk by me in the lobby, I think that happened one time in the 20 years that I was there, but I was like, Oh, it's Bill Hybel, you know, and you feel like you're talking to a celebrity or walking past a celebrity. You yeah. are. You know, Rob, my experience with uh, clapping is I grew up in a church, fundamentalist, evangelical, conservative, dispensational type, you know. Um, we never clapped for anything. And the really pious people said amen when, when good points were made. But it was mostly the males, the elders and the, the deacons mm. who said amen. And I never heard anyone clap for anybody in any religious setting, and this is four years of having to go to chapel every day when I was in college. Um, for in four years of going to churches there, I saw Bible conferences with very well-known pastors preaching. 
I never saw anyone clap for anything until I went to Willow Creek. And it's, it just stunned me that it had that sense of a theater and clapping for people. Now, I understand that some people say, let's give a clap for Jesus. But this is uh, pretty, pretty hard to distinguish from a clap for me and for the people on the stage. And when we're clapping for people on a stage in church, we, I, I consider that action blasphemous. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I, I, I'm actually curious on that because uh, I've never attended Willow Creek and I, I've attended bigger churches, but you know, in, in technically mega churches, because I think what anything over 2000 is a mega yeah, church, right? Yeah. Um, but nothing to the size of a Willow Creek. And I've been in a number of churches that will clap after songs and, and that sort of, or they may even clap after a, a, a sermon. And I, I always feel uncomfortable doing that, but you know, I, I think there are those people who that's their way of expressing gratitude and there's an authenticity there. Um, and I don't think I've ever personally been in a situation where it just felt, other than my own discomfort, I felt like, wow, this is idolatrous. Um, for you, because you just made, made the comment being at Willow Creek, did it actually feel, was it, was it just outside of your comfort zone, Scott? Or were you like, no, this is actually like, this is on the dividing line of idolatry and just giving worship. Yeah. Like, can you actually sense it's, that? It's, it's a fair, yeah. To me, it was immediately obvious because there's such an entertainment dimension. You're going to clap for someone singing. Is that what we do? What, what are we clapping? Well, why are we clapping? Right. Shouldn't singing lead us into moments of quiet worship and wondering and thinking? Clapping, clapping is an expression of of affirmation of something. Now, maybe people are clapping for the words that were said, but I, I found I found when I spoke at churches, and I've, I've been privileged to speak in a lot of churches in the last, since I wrote Jesus Creed in 2000, 1994 or wherever it was, 2004, I don't know. Um, it was in the 2000s. I, I find. It, huh? was, it was it's, sometime in the 2000s. 2004. Yeah. Okay. So to me, what I've noticed is whenever I say something positive about the church, if I were to say something like, you know, I know this church is doing really well on integration, they suddenly start clapping. Hmm. That's not clapping for that's, that's sort of self affirmation, right? That's the culture I'm that I'm sensing that has taken over because of the entertainment dimension that has been brought into churches through the mega churches. That's, I don't think it's impossible to, to clap for God. Right. But I'm very suspicious. Right. Right. Let's talk for a minute now. In some of these larger churches, you have a large staff and some of the staff are um, kind of in, in their sweet spot, so to speak, because they get to have a niche ministry, right? One that, that's specifically um, uh, tuned to what they, what they're good at, what they're called at. And they look at the mega church situation that they're in and they go, I got all the resources to do what I need to do and what I want to do. I can do this really well. And then, but they see corruption at the higher levels and, and, and things aren't, but, but they don't want to speak up about it for a lot of reasons. One of which is I like my job. I can't do this job anywhere else. What's your word of, of advice or, or caution to, to, to those in ministry that are acting that way? You know, Rob, I get, I get asked this way too much. And it is an extraordinary moral challenge for, for many people to speak up. Hmm. So 
Um, I would say the first thing I would want to say to them, I want you to, I would say eyeball to eyeball. I want you to recognize the culture that you've gotten yourself into. This is mm -hmm. a cultural issue. It's not just you. Uh, and it's not just that leader or who's done something that should be called out. It is a culture that is propping up that leader to be able to do that. And you being very uncomfortable about speaking up. So I'd say that first. The second thing is um, there needs to be a place where such a person can feel safe to speak about hesitations and concerns. Right? I was talking to a young, well, not too young, let's say she's 40, um, who was a pastor in a church in California. And she simply asked the pastor one day if there's ever a time when they're planning strategy, if she could attend. Two weeks later, she was fired. Hmm. Because she asked a question, she wanted to, all she wanted to do was participate in decision making. Well, that was a culture, a culture of, you know, sort of a Mark Driscoll-like culture. Mm -hmm. I don't mind using names. Um, so uh, I would say uh, that person needs to find a safe place, even if it's only a therapist that they can go talk to. I hope there's someone on staff that they can speak to about this issue that's safe, that uh, other than getting together and griping and moaning about mm -hmm, the pastor, mm -hmm. right, is right. it's actually, I saw him say something. I saw him treat someone that I have deep concerns about. This is, this is inappropriate. Right. Uh, he just gaslighted three people in our church or he, he verbally abused someone. Now, I know this happens in some of these churches because people have told me it happened. And they were in a position where it was nearly impossible to speak up. And if they did, they realized uh, it could be their head, it could be their job, it could be their income, it was their family. They, were, they had kids who were seniors in high school. You know, we're talking tuition for college. Do I want to become a barista? These are the sorts of things that people are in. And I think a lot of these narcissistic leaders realize they've got people in a corner and they're going to keep them there. Hmm. I, I have a thought on this and I, I could not help, especially being someone who's on a church staff, as I'm reading through the book, it, my eyes start getting open to things, right? And I, I started... Uh, engaging in something I, I was an, as an undergrad I was a psych major and so you go through psychology yeah. classes and then all of a sudden you start seeing everything you're studying yeah. in everything right <laughs> you're, yeah, you're projecting right. that everything yeah. and so I even reading through this book I'm like oh my gosh is this happening here and, I, and I'm, I'm starting to you know my eyes are open which are good but I, I had to catch myself saying wait a minute how much am I projecting and how could I actually go through this process in a healthy way where I'm not overly skeptical and cynical about everyone. I'm still filling gaps with trust and not suspicion, but also using discernment. Could you speak to the folks in, whether they are on a church staff or in a congregation to say, Hey, no, we, we need to be wise, but not ignorant on these things. Well, uh, we've developed a questionnaire. I think, uh, I don't know if it's, on our website or not, uh, Laurel will know that sort of thing. Yeah, we've developed a questionnaire to help churches have conversations around Tove. Uh, is our church Tove? You know, like six questions on each major category. Um, and, you know, 
to talk about it, but it, it has to be done in a safe way, in ways that people can, can be honest and not just get together and gripe about, you know, someone's uh, report, somebody they report to. So um, I, I, we don't want to make people cynical about churches. We don't want them to become critical of churches when it's not there. But Vinny, we've been told by 50 people that we've given them language mm -hmm. for what's going on in their churches. So we see this as redemptive, as it's going to help, even if it's bruising and wounding a little bit at first, it can help in the long run. Mm. Now, let's speak a little bit now to the congregants, the people in these churches that have either themselves been um, the, the, the party that's been injured by leadership, whatever it might be, um, or they've seen it and become disgruntled by uh, the poor leadership in the church. Uh, I know a lot of people right now that are just wanting to give up on church mm -hmm. uh, wanting, and just, they don't know where to go. They don't, they don't want to become part of another community because they don't have any trust. Uh, what, what's the word to them that, that you guys might have? It's not the way that it's supposed to be. Hmm. I That's how I felt all along with the Willow Creek situation, why I kept, in my dad's words, pastoring him to write about it, is that I felt like it was so unsettling in my soul that the, the sexual allegations we learned were just the tip of the iceberg. Right. That mm -hmm. below it was a whole history of all sorts of power abuses that propped up the system and allowed it to happen. There were, we call them retainers around the pastor. And so I started having these, my conversations with my dad about what we were seeing. And he was explaining to me about how they weren't using the Bible correctly, that they weren't even interpreting it correctly, that they were using it to protect their image rather than care for the wounded. And for me, that was the whole purpose in writing the book is that that is not how it is supposed to be. The church is not supposed to be a place where people are damaged. It is a place where people can be healed and care for the wounded. Yeah. The, um, I would, I would counsel, I mean, this is really difficult because people who perceive and suddenly realize we've got a toxic situation here are in a position of if they speak up, they lose their position and mm -hmm. maybe get fired or they'll, you know, they'll have to leave or they're putting themselves in a really difficult emotional and psychological position of, of tension and fights and criticism. They're going to survive, but it's going to, they're going to get beaten up. Um, I, I believe in safety. I believe that they, uh, people who are in congregants, who are far from positions of power, who are not on the eldership or deacons or whatever, are not close to the buttons that create power in the church. They need to find safe places of tove. We call them pockets of tove. Find pockets of tove in which they can find um, an oasis, a respite from the toxicity and 
concentrate on living life of Tov with one another and experimenting. I think they also need to be very careful about spending their time criticizing the pastor because some of these are just gripe groups right. and that's not healthy. I also think they, uh, they will want to follow the policies and protocols of expressing concerns. There should be some, some leader that they can go to and at least ask a couple questions and discern whether it's a safe place or not. Um, and some people just start blurting out and then they're in trouble. I, I got a letter yesterday <laughs> from a pastor, well, from a guy who's a leader, uh, who's on the leadership circle at a church. He's not one of the pastors. And he sent me a screenshot of, of, of his communication with um, a major leader, one of the pastor's types. And he just let him have it. And I thought, well, you're, you're going to lose your position. Uh, you certainly blurted it out and said what you thought. But those are, those are the kinds of strategies that probably aren't going to work. Um, and so I would say, you know, prayer, uh, work with people that you can work with, have realistic expectations, because it's very unlikely that a narcissistic pastor is going to listen to you and say, oh, I've been wrong right. all along. Let's change and become Tove, just like you said. They're not going to do that. Right. And uh, they're probably going to fight you, resist you, gaslight you, exclude you. So realize what you can do. Maybe, maybe you can be heard by a leader um, and they'll come back to you and tell you, we talked about it. We're going to be aware of it. And that might be all the farther you can get in that setting. Um, and then if it becomes unbearable for you, uh, you know, I, I had a pastor say to me, um, just tell him to leave. It's, it's just going to be healthier for him to, mm -hmm. rather than sit there and fight and fight and fight mm -hmm. and get frustrated. And, you know, and, and, and I don't mean that criticism and complaining isn't, is always wrong. It's just that, you, you have to weigh how long you want to put up with, with the problem that you're taking a look at. You know, when I was reading through the section on uh, Yom Kippur and Christian practice, and, and, and some of what you're talking about here kind of relates to that, um, I, I couldn't help but thinking how anytime someone engage, is, is involved in any kind of trauma, there's, there, you go through that period of grief and, and just working all those sorts of things out. And whether it's the trauma of losing a loved one or losing a job or anything like that, you know, trauma is relative in a sense where everyone responds differently. And I, I know we've all seen this before, maybe even experienced it ourselves where we experience a trauma or see someone experience a trauma. And then as the person is going through the process of learning how to deal with it and cope with it, they actually aren't doing that. They actually like take on that and that becomes their new identity. And, and, and you can see with people, it's like, well, this isn't healthy. Like, yeah, you should never get over the death of your parents. Like I, I, I'm thinking of a friend who their parents been dead for 12 years. They're an adult. You should never get to the point where you're okay with your parent being dead. It should hurt, but this has kind of become their identity. Like as just being like, this is just everything that shapes their life. Um, and, and I don't want to say they're victimizing themselves. It's just, it, but it's something there. It, you, you can see how they haven't dealt with it in a healthy way. How could we encourage our folks who have dealt with spiritual trauma from church leaders in an unhealthy church environment? What is a way that we can encourage them to say, yeah, you need to deal with this stuff. You need to have that safe circle 
where you're talking about it and you're and you're processing through it. And I'm not going to give you a timeline because that's only for God and you to work through. However, you also can't stay here because it's not good for that to become your new identity. And I hate even phrasing it that way because I feel so uh, uncharitable and and just rude about it. But I, hopefully, you guys understand like you know what I'm trying to get out there. Well, it's it's difficult, Vinny, because we want to be sensitive to to the wounds, to the trauma that people yeah. have. And at the same time, realize that if you're going to use every setting that you're in to trot out before people your wounds, you eventually it's not going to be comfortable for anybody else. And you are not dealing with it appropriately. So I would say a therapist will help. They have to do that. But if if everything at a let's just say that a person has been traumatized with spiritual abuse in a specific church. And if every time they get together with anybody in that church, they have to return to mm -hmm. that trauma. Well, it's not healthy. You're, you're not in a position yet of healthiness of uh, what Diane Langberg would say. You have to be healed enough to be able to deal with the wound before you want to come forward about that wound. Uh, and I, and I would say that uh, they, they need to discern themselves for themselves unless someone can help them that if they're not healthy enough to handle that environment, then they need to find an environment where they're, they're going to be healed rather than just re-victimized over and over and over. Yeah. And I if, think it, Laura. Well, Laura I was actually going to ask a follow-up to Laura on that. And it, you, Laura, you're so good about being transparent in the book on so many of your own things anyway, but have you found this to be a struggle with folks in your own circle who it's like, you know, normally you wouldn't be able to talk to just anyone about this stuff. You went and wrote a book, <laughs> but, but you know, there is a common bond that you have with people who experience this trauma. And so it's natural that it would come up, but have you found that to be something where you're, you just have to be a little more cognitive about to say, okay, I, I need to process this in a healthy way. Not that I can never bring it up again, but I don't know. Is that, is that something that has been a struggle for you as you've gone through this? I, as you're talking, I am reminded of some of the folks that they were traumatized by Willow Creek. It was a real, I never struggled with my faith, but I know some that did. And um, one of my really good friends in particular really, really struggled. And every time there was a statement made about, I don't know, Willow Creek or when Bill Heibel's daughter came out of her silence, I saw, you know, unhealthy emotions and triggers. And like my dad was saying, I think counseling has been very healing for a lot of the folks that were terribly shaken by Willow Creek. Like I said, my faith, it did not, it did not affect my faith, but I certainly understand that it did for others. Um, what I always went back to was this isn't how it's supposed to be. This is not, this is not of God. This is not how he designed a church to operate and what's happening to you is wrong. Yeah. 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 yeah I think if we learn to keep our focus on Christ, which is what it's all about anyways, then we realize, okay, that's, that's what we're really, the truth of Christ and who he is doesn't change just because a church does what it does. And in fact, you know, in some of my counseling, the experiences I've, I've shared with people, I said, listen, 
the devil knows exactly what the church is supposed to be doing. And, and one of his, one of his major weapons is to say, let's attack that, um, you know, and, 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 uh, keeping our focus on Christ uh, helps us uh, overcome that. But I think it's really important to recognize the fact that a lot of people that are in the midst of these churches that maybe don't have as mature a faith um, are going to struggle a lot, uh, a lot greater uh, in greater ways. Let me ask one more question before we, as we finish up, uh, Scott, you're in the academic world, teaching at colleges and seminaries as well. And, and it seems our seminaries and our colleges were, are, we're, we're training this next generation of leaders and we're training, we're training our leaders. What's their responsibility in this uh, to kind of mitigate this before it even starts? Uh, we think about this a lot. Uh, I think about it probably more than, than others in my seminary, but um, there, there has a, there's a shift toward seminaries having more emphasis on spiritual formation. Right? And, I, and I think that's good. Um, but but seminary professors, by and large, are not trained to nurture character in other people. That's not what we were taught to do. So it's, it's, um, it's a part of what we want to happen while we don't have a system that actually works in that direction. So... I think what we're going to find in the, what I'm hoping we're going to find in the next 10 years of seminary education is an increased emphasis on character formation. Let's say character identification. So people become, our students become more self-aware and then character formation to the degree that a seminary context can help that and churches that are increasingly focused on character formation from the inside out, or to use the model of churches today, from the top down, where we actually are working on character formation, identifying it, struggling with it, uh, recognizing different personalities are going to have different strengths, and recognizing um, Tove when we see it, holding Tove people up as models. Which is why, oddly enough, Rob, you know, and Vinny, you guys read the book. We love Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers is Tove. Yeah. We want we want the church to hold up people like that as the role models for young people who are becoming Christians, and for people in the church to say we want to lead uh, with the kind of character that a Mr. Rogers type person had. So. It's, it's nothing but in the planning stage, I think, right now in most places. Wonderful. As we, as we wrap up, I want to just remember, remind the, the listeners as well that, you know, for every one of these individuals that's out there as the narcissist run, 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 run uh, amok, um, there are a lot of really good pastors and there's a lot of really good churches. There's a lot of really good people in those really good churches too. Um, yep, yep. And we, we sometimes focus on the ones that are getting the attention and that caused us to get disillusioned. And of course, that's exactly what I, as I said before, that's what the devil wants us to do. Um, and and uh, let's focus on those who are really doing good things for the kingdom and maybe learn from them. So Scott, Laura, we want to thank you guys so much guys. for being with us. Uh, it's been yeah, wonderful and we appreciate this. The insights want to encourage all of our listeners to get the, get the book, A Church Called Tove. 
um, plug into Scott's um, po- podcast, The Kingdom Roots. Of course, after you listen to the Determined Truth podcast, then <laughs> at the end of the week, you can listen to his podcast, but uh, plug into his um, uh, blog posts as well. And, and, and Scott and Laura have some more things coming up and new books as well. And look, look forward to it. And maybe we'll do this again as we continue this conversation as uh, our, 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 our our tagline here is to challenge the church to be the church. And uh, this is this is one of the areas where it's most difficult. So thank you very much. I appreciate you go- you're being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're I'm welcome. just Thanks, a little guys. nervous with that Fenway Park sign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry about that, but uh, born in Boston, so. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.